Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is proudly sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylic paint. They make Williamsburg oil colors and core watercolors and a bunch of mediums and other paint supplies that are the best quality you can get. You can find Golden in your local art store, or you can find out more information about them and their employee-owned company at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee. Since Fulcrum has started me on their subscription coffee program, I've been trying new coffee each week, and there hasn't been a dud so far. Really great coffee with distinct differences in each roast. It's some of the best coffee I've had. And trust me, I've had a lot. The next time you're looking for coffee, check out Seattle-based Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. You can find out more and get their coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Sound and Vision listeners get a 20% discount on their order with the code ALFREDSTUDIO when purchasing their coffee. Amy Kunat is a Japanese-American artist from McHenry, Illinois, who received her MFA from the Cornell University, her post-baccalaureate in painting and drawing from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and her BA in visual arts and art history from Fordham University. She's exhibited at Peep Projects in Pennsylvania, the Shaker Museum, Victory and Mo, Knockdown Center, Sunroom Project Space at Wave Hill, the Art Yard in New Jersey, DC Moore Gallery, and Crush Curatorial, amongst others. She's the recipient of a 2021 NYSA NYFA Artist Fellowship in Interdisciplinary Work and a 2019 Regional Economic Development Council grant by NYSA in collaboration with the Shaker Museum. Her work has been reviewed and featured by the New York Times, Art News, Artsy, Artnet News, Title Magazine, Vogue Italia, Art Maze Mag, and Two Coats of Paint. And she lives and works in Brooklyn. I spoke with Amy about acrylic paint, paintings that push outward, magic, okonomiyaki, and much more. Here's our conversation. start to yawn involved like just yeah not that you're even tired it's just all of a sudden you just start yawning maybe that's yeah. like my own affliction no no that's like muscle memory it's like you the bedtime reading thing it's like when they get they saddle up to you and you you get ready to read there's just something it i think it signifies we should all be sleeping right now <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah well it's true. I'm I'm all for you know I I used to nap and so uh, I miss those days. Yeah. No more napping and so yes I agree that we should all be sleeping. I, yeah. Naps are I great. Did you, you know, ever nap with your nine cups of coffee in your youthful like strapping days? Not okay. a napper. Nope. I mean. I didn't think so. Too much caffeine running through those blood veins. Yeah. I know. I know. We're gonna turn this into a caffeine shaming. <laughs> you know, like I'm not trying to like shame you. I'm so sorry. I think. I'm Hold like, on, I gotta drink um, a little coffee. Give me one <laughs> second. <laughs> this is a double, by the way. Ooh. Yeah. No, okay. I, uh, no, but I was never a big napper. I've, I'm a very, very light sleeper, so I don't just mm-hmm. do those heavy nap things. Although, one of my idols when I was younger was Buckminster Fuller. I just loved mm-hmm. his visionary ideas, and he had this theory 
if I'm not mistaken, about sleep to where you're you're most productive. If you, I think it was like you're awake for four hours, then you sleep for two or three hours, then you're awake for four hours, and you just kind of cycle that way. Oh, and so it, it's like having a newborn. Yeah, exactly. Basically. Yeah, yeah, which we've all <laughs> done the research. It doesn't make you the most productive person. No. Although that would be willingly sleeping that way, not by default of like baby screams waking you up. <laughs> but Thanks, supposedly, oh, and you know, people who, you know, nap supposedly more productive. Like if you take a little cat nap, it's probably a good thing. Yeah, cat naps are good. Uh, I'm a, t- when I did nap, it was more of like a two hour stretch. So, um, solid I, REM nap. Yeah. Like when you wake up sometimes and you feel more tired than when you took that the happens, nap. You, then you muscle through it and then you start working yeah. and it feels great. Uh, muscle caffeine well. whatever you want to call actually, it you're actually you're you're similar to my husband he's he's a light sleeper he's big big into um coffee he wakes up really early you know goes to bed at a reasonable time exercises <laughs> i mean i don't know if you do that but <laughs> i do it's part of the waking up early i feel like if yeah. i get that out of the way then i'm ready for the rest of the day that's nice that's really great i i roll out and i'm lucky if i get out of my pajamas by like 1 p.m <laughs> That's Let me make your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> That's me talking to my daughter, not just by myself. <laughs> so you have art behind you. This is at, are you in a studio or is this just um, at home art? Yes, this is uh, well, both, because <laughs> my studio is at home. There you go. Uh, my husband and I moved to Park Slope a couple years ago, and just before I had my daughter. And then <clears throat> the pandemic hit, and I wasn't ever going to my studio. So then, we was your studio far? At uh, that not point? too far from where we are at now. When uh, we were living in Manhattan, it was a bit of a hike, but we got used to that commute. It was really great. I actually really miss it. But since I sort of closed up shop, this has been kind of home base. And you know, the nice thing about moving the studio home is that um, getting to work right away rather than having to worry about the commute, the additional yeah. time to get to the place right. is um, obviously not a thing anymore. I also find that uh, it's sort of in some ways forced me to, to really kind of reflect and kind of concentrate on painting again, whereas um, prior I was having a little bit larger of a space to work. I was making sort of sculptural objects and things that were much more uh, messy. And since yeah. this is our, my home, then I can't really do that as much. So. Yeah, and the the working at home gives you the sneaking time. Like, you can just sneak in a little time here and there to work, which going to the studio in the city is usually like, okay, I'm going. Like, I'm going to be there for a little while. And I can't just jet, you know, across town for like 20 minutes and then go back to like make lunch. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pandemic thing, I mean, that was kind of, there were a few things that kind of, you know, silver linings with the pandemic, I think. And that was one of them of just being able to like work whenever, you know what I mean? Just sneak it in at home, which, you know. Did, did you also move your studio home at that time? I did. I was just making work on paper, like little stuff. So it was just, it worked, you know, but are I have. Like, are those those collages that? Yes. You yeah. The little guys. And I hadn't done those in a while because my, you know, I've done so many of those over the years that my hands feel like they're going <laughs> to you know, going to fall off, but maybe I rested long enough to where I felt like, okay, I can do this. So I, I jumped back into that, but, and then I turned this where I do, 
you know, this kind of like sound stuff. I also like work here on little stuff too sometimes. So, you know, I mean, it was lucky. I'm sure some people didn't have any space to convert. So I felt lucky in that sense. But, um, but yeah, it was easier to, to just find little bits of time here and there to work. Mm-hmm. But I mean, did you, did you, I mean, one of the benefits of having a studio outside of your house is that there is a bit of separation from like your home life and, you know, that world. And like, did you find any sort of difficulty trying to inhabit that sort of mental space as a result of working from home or you're kind of like, okay with it sort of? Not really. I think maybe, yeah, not really. I'm, I'm kind of adaptable to, you know, I've had friends and I know artists that their work is very, it's, it's a thing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you're like that. Like, when you when they do the work, no matter what it is, there's a very specific way, there's a vibe, there's a scene, it's got to happen in a certain context, there's got to be a mindset, all that stuff. And I feel like over the years, I've just taught myself, like, there's not enough, like, I can't wait for conditions to be amazing. I just have to do it no matter, and be malleable and work, you know. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I, 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 I think at the end of the day, if you don't adapt like that, you can just end up not making work, which isn't good. I agree. I, I would say that I am similar. Um, whatever space I have, which has been anything from a kitchen table to having a really large studio to back at home. Um, I don't know, if I don't make work, it, it feels really strange. And so I no matter what the space restraints are or how generous it might be, it, it never seems right to not be making something. And so um, I think I'm flexible in that way. That's nice to hear. Yeah. Actually. Did you, so you didn't really have to shift scale or, or make big adjustments whenever you were, you know, uh, changing from the sculptural bigger studio to, or, or it was something that you invited basically, like it worked for you. Yeah, I mean the sculptural the sculptural objects. It was, as you know, between having being super pregnant and coming off of a, a pretty uh, large installation and kind of unusual curatorial opportunity at the Shaker Museum in Mount Lebanon, um, and coming off of that being five months pregnant and then having my daughter that same year to moving um, and then having the baby. It. it it wasn't really a challenge for me to sort of take a break from the sculptural installations because they are uh, something about sculpture actually that's very phys- physically sort of exhausting. It, it really takes a lot out of you. you know, your back hurts and like your arms feel like they're going to fall off some days. And if you're using a razor blade like I am, you're cutting things constantly. And so it becomes a very, very um, taxing yeah. situation. So when I got here and then, the you know, again, with the pandemic and having a, a baby, um, the the painting doesn't require that same level of calorie burning I would say (laughs) and um so I you know taking the sculpture and putting that on the back burner for a little while has been really wonderful and to kind of move back into painting which is what um you know my kind of my primary interest is and I would even say that the sculptural installations are always um pointing back to painting in some way yeah they feel painterly there's a lot of color and it looks large and ex- sort of like environmentally expansive with sort of painting techniques or like what you would do in painting, but just exploding it out. Do you miss that? 
Do I miss the installations? Or just, I guess, well, obviously you don't miss the, the <laughs> physical exhaustion, but I mean, that does punch in a different way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you say that and I, I just criticized how it, it is taxing, but I do kind of miss some of that. There are things that you do with, uh, or at least I did with making sculpture that required um, a different kind of bodily movement every time you would produce something. And so in that way, it was actually um, kind of liberating. Whereas, you know, with the, the paintings, I'm using a lot of really, really tiny brushes and repeating things over and over. And there's acts that just um, can be kind of, you know, very, very tight a lot. Right. And um, I miss... I miss when the installations are complete and that moment that it feels right. Right. The end. <laughs> and, um, yeah. The end. And that, I mean, it's always, I mean, I guess because, I don't know about you, but it's like with painting, you know, in the beginning, it's all about invention. It's like the excitement of producing the thing and all of the, um, the generative aspects of like the work. And then in the middle, it's, for me, it's about coats and coats and coats and refining and getting it right. And then at the end, there's this kind of great kind of release that it's sort of, hit it in the way that um, a work of yours can feel complete. And I think the installations are similar in that way. Um, Lots of kind of exploration, sometimes research. And um, then you have to actually make the goddamn thing. And then at the end, it feels right. Uh, I like uh, when I moved into a larger scale, you know, with the wall paintings or the sculptural installations, it's been rewarding to see how people interact with them afterwards. you know, I created a meeting house at Victory and Mo in a couple of years back now, and that was a the recreation of a Shaker meeting house. Where at the opening reception, there's this really wonderful moment where it was like filled with people, and they're really activating something that um, sort of a context that I had created. That's cool. That's yeah. super amazing, actually. Yeah, it's funny. I I completely agree with you what you were saying, and I've noticed not to be an older person talking about getting older, but I definitely, the physical side of it wears as years go by. (laughs) Like if I think back when I was in grad school and I would gesso a giant canvas, Mm -hmm. I would gesso the canvas and start working. Nowadays, if I'm gessoing a giant canvas, I'm like, I, I just did that. And then I'm tired. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you just, it, it affects you differently as you get older, you know? Yeah, and I, no, and it, I notice the, um, I don't know if you have this too, where, I mean, it, I think it is contingent upon like it, with my work of the sort of representation of it, but there's like the beginning of the painting, which is exciting because it's like, okay, you're mapping it out and then I'm working and then it just turns into like this struggle of getting mm-hmm. it to the point to where I'm like, oh, okay, now I see it's going to work. Even though I know I can get it to that point and most of the time I get it there. It's like until I see the reward, it's a drag, mm-hmm. you know, and then I want to do it quickly so I can get to, I don't know, it's like 60 or 70 percent of the way there. And then I'm like, OK, mm-hmm. this is going to work. And then it's mm-hmm. fun for the rest of the time. <laughs> I know it's weird. It, it's such a it really is craft. You know what I mean? Even though it's, you know, when we think of art and we think of what it does and what we're saying and. You know, there's all that context of the bigger meaning, but it's there's so much of it is just craft and making it, which is great and sometimes exhausting. <laughs> Most of the time exhausting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, agreed about the craft thing. I'm actually curious about your opinion of craft because it seems like you um, 
you know, you're a champion of it. And, you know, I don't know about that. Who told you that? (laughs) Oh, no, I made a I made a swooping uh, endless struggle is what I like to call it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I you know, I I wonder um, sort of craft's relevance to contemporary um, art and painting. And it's like a like a large topic. But I am curious for a person who's sort of mindful of craft, like what it feels like when, um, you know, craft isn't as much of a, um, maybe as a priority for some artists, but specifically maybe younger artists. Yeah. Um, it's a, you're te- it's you a, teach, so I'm like I wondering. Do. Yeah. So the phenomenon that I've learned from teaching and sort of thinking about artwork um, in relation to other people's work and the images and what they're trying to do, I think I've shifted over the years of an understanding of, you know, whereas I might have had an opinion on craft and I, I would have said something like, you got to be good enough or you have to, whatever. I don't do that anymore. I realize that the craft is contingent upon the idea and the artist in that dynamic between the conceptual side of it, what they're trying to do and what the craft means and whether that's relevant to the discourse of what's happening or whether it's engaging. So I don't think mm-hmm. there's a right or wrong answer. I don't think there is... You know, if it's done well, it doesn't matter if the craft is amazing or if there's no craft in it, you know, mm-hmm. if it's mm-hmm. conceptual work where the craft isn't really about it. I'll give you a great example. I've always loved that Gabriel Orozco uh, show at Marion Goodman where it's just four of those clear yogurt caps, one on each wall. And I just think that's such a ballsy, like minimalist sculptural installation and in the context of the rest of his work, when you see the craft is a big part of it, like you can't see it just for what it is. You have to see it within the context of his work and the gallery and all that. It just, it, to me, it's really interesting. But someone else would come in there and be like, oh, Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's a lot of people who would say that. So yeah, that's um, I think it depends, really, on the artist. And I mean, I've seen people who are really good at their craft and it's so boring. <laughs> yeah, I that's mm-hmm. don't you feel that way about well, I don't know, it's well, we'll let music in the door here. I mean, there's people who are really good at playing instruments and they make meh, you know, and then there's mm-hmm. people who can play like four bar chords and they make the most intense, awesome songs, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh singing, like Billie Holiday and Chet Baker were, weren't thought of as the best technical singers, but they're two of my favorites you know what I mean so it, I guess it it depends how do you feel about it how do I feel about craft or how do I feel about Chet Baker and Billie Holiday both <laughs> all three <laughs> well um admittedly this is the the part of the uh, conversation that I was sort of dreading was the music conversation all right let's turn left this is in part. Let's go that way <laughs> so what kind of brushes do you use <laughs> no it's fine <laughs> I knew it was coming um for obvious reasons uh, I mean, okay, the craft thing, it's, I, I think you kind of hit it home where I think it depends on, um, you know, what the artist wants to accomplish within the work and um, a kind of a really well-crafted painting or a sculpture or something um, is nothing without whatever the ideas are that kind of surround it um, or push it forward or has participation in a contemporary conversation. I would say that a well-crafted um, piece of uh I don't know, like craftsman furniture might be this beautiful object and it has a lot of really kind of uh, mindful craft sort of embedded in that that experience but at the same token it's 
groundbreaking. I, I don't know, maybe, and I'm not even saying that groundbreaking is necessarily what we're all trying to kind of um, attain with it, within our work. But so yeah, um, agreed. As far as the music thing is concerned, I mean, I mean, shall we segue into that? I mean, I, I don't like. I don't know. They're nice. I've I've heard their music before. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful voices. Yeah. I know that Billie Holiday is a woman. I mean, that's there's a step in the right direction. I there guess. you go. That's all you need to know. And she's a singer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I know that you are a jazz DJ. Were a jazz DJ and have a lot of familiarity in that world that I do not. But and so I commend you for that knowledge base. It's just <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> well, let's say like Green Day versus you know, I don't know, like a, a Led Zeppelin guitar solo. You know what I mean? There's like one is a little more rough around the edges, but brings a certain energy. You know, <laughs> and then we could think of contemporary artists or just any artist for that matter like who was a who was a not so great painter back in the day that's a challenging question i think that are recognized yeah, yeah. Uh, what, you know we, like we, someone in the canon about like like calder or renoir i guess calder wasn't really a painter oh renoir is a good yeah. example i guess because people were hating on him recently um yeah, the, the beady eyes you know shifty yeah i mean versus like rembrandt you know, someone who's thought of as like this master of skill, you know, it's just like some people like the Renoir, they like the, the romance or the Fragonards, they like the flowers and the swings and, you know, the romance of it. And it doesn't have to be all technical, you know, um, chops, I guess. That's the age old question, you know, and I think some people just like are drawn to one over the other, you know, it's taste. Some people like bad painting. <laughs> And what is that? Exactly. It's um really muddy palette with really crappy technique. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. Quote unquote bad painting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. And I do recognize that you were totally trying to bring it down to my level with the Green Day Zeppelin uh reference, you know. Heard of that. I guess too. just another Thanks. genre, I don't know. What so music no, was never right. a thing for you? No, music is a thing for me. It's just um it's never my my uh the things that play off of my iPod or phone or whatever the apparatus is has never been, um, you know, sort of the choice music that artists like to sort of geek out on. And I, I totally understand that. And that's okay. I'm like a big, um, you know, I was thinking about this question actually a lot because I was, I was nervous about it. I was thinking about the earliest experiences that I had with music and a lot of music came from listening to the radio on the way to school, you know, my dad's car, my mom's, and uh, in the Chicago area, there's a station called Oldies 104.3. This is in the 90s. I'm taking, I take This is in the 90s, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Good good decade. Come on, that's a pretty good decade. The 90s? Yeah, for music? Yeah, but I was listening to like Oldies, so we were talking about like Motown and 70s rock and, you know, things that sort of preceded it. Still pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) So, no, it was great. It was really great. So, but my experience with like music in general was that, you know, you you turn on the radio and then everything's been sort of chosen for you. Right. It's a bit curated, obviously, because you have a radio DJ and stuff. So, I I like that. I like playlists and music that has you know, some of the choices um, kind of taken away from you. And so I listened to some top 50s tracks 
a lot of 90s pop. Sure. Alanis Morissette meant something to you, probably. <laughs> Not in the way that probably she meant a lot to a lot of other people, but yeah, for sure. Actually, you know, it's funny when you mentioned that I hadn't thought of that in my, I don't think I've thought of that in my life until the moment you said that. that Alanis Morissette? No, no. <laughs> I've thought of her a lot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so that the radio was basically the Spotify shuffle before Spotify shuffle, but the Spotify mm-hmm. shuffle or the suggested listening playlists is always kind of a topic of discussion for people of like, oh, well, it's the algorithm and they figure out what you like. But it's like, wait, that's what radio was. You never had a say unless you called in and was like, please play the new Britney Spears song. Yeah, the request. Yeah. (laughs) As if it wasn't on every five songs. But yeah, I think (laughs) that was, you know, radio was that for people. Yeah. So now we just have endless varieties of those suggested playlists and you know stations they call them but Mm -hmm. um so that's what you do now basically is you'll just click on do you do streaming stuff yeah i've 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 spotify uh people will send me playlists um because i think they feel sorry for me (laughs) so i uh i i I welcome the playlist situation but mostly just spotify Uh, occasionally i will go down memory lane and you know hit up some again hits of the 90s or something like that and there's a lot of versions of that by the way too yeah so you can start to really understand the nuances of that kind of popular music by that at that point um yeah so that's that but i think that that happens more during and you know we were talking about you know the invention portion of like making something and that really happens at the beginning uh once i once i'm done with that i i can't listen to music too too long i have to listen to an audiobook or something to keep me kind of focused on the painting that's interesting it's like a, a little yeah. bit of a flip from a lot of people because a lot of people when they're trying to think of what's going to happen they need silence or you know not a lot of distraction and then once they just they know what they're doing or they start the process then they need the music as like the beat or the energy to it but mm-hmm. yours is kind of the inverse which is cool it's yeah like i mean using maybe, sound again, as maybe an influence maybe in the beginning or at least <sighs> energy I suppose you could say that. I, I wouldn't say it's an active influence necessarily. I mean, you know, the, the paintings are sort of loud and flamboyant and have a lot of um, sort of exclamatory sort of energy about them. But, and yeah, I guess if, if I think about it, then maybe some of the music choices that I do, um, you know, the things that I listen to feed into that in some way. But maybe it's, I, I think it's because everything during the actual production of the painting is slower and um, can be really tedious that having an audiobook, I don't know, makes it feel less painful to actually have to put coat after coat of right. something on it. So Yeah, because so. of the power of distraction. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, when I'm commuting on long drives, the podcasts are great because your mind goes somewhere else. You know, it, it doesn't think about time or... It just kind of like does its thing, which is nice. Yeah, and you commute to Pennsylvania, right, for your job? Yeah, when I'm teaching, yeah. yeah. How um, long is that drive? That's a bit of a haul. It's just under four hours, so it's a good two long podcasts. Yeah. It's, honestly, sometimes I'll get there and I'm like, the podcast isn't done, and I'm like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I got here too fast. But it does help, you know what I mean? Whereas if it were just silence or just like a couple songs, it would feel a lot longer, I think. 
Yeah. Do you like? Is it your? Is it your own podcast? You're, are you listening to your own? Oh, just. So you're. I just, so just got a little sick. Sorry, I just, <laughs> <laughs> just threw up in my mouth a little bit. That would be horrible. <laughs> um, no, no, there's a lot of good ones out there. Thankfully, yeah. so you know. But no, it's I, I and it's funny. I I like you know. Uh, there's a wide variety. I'm sure you do too. But so, okay, let's steer back to the paintings because like what, what is going on in these paintings? You know, I've been looking at these paintings and I, they're really interesting because they're like, I'm like, where are you coming from? <laughs> <laughs> like, where are you thinking of these images? Some of them are really weird in a really like interesting way. That's a compliment. Always, yeah, I, I wasn't sure, but that's okay. I, no, it's a big compliment. <laughs> They're not boring paint. Like they don't look like a lot of other stuff, which I think is a real challenge. Um, where are they coming from? The work uh, lately, I'm really interested in um, creating toying with perception so if we can just sort of keep that as a, a little bit of a an umbrella on the work but the things that I'm producing I have a show um, in September and I've been making these plant-like um, images that um, you know feel confrontational um, I think that they feel like they're emitting some sort of like a signal or message, even though you don't quite necessarily know what it might be. Um, so I guess here's the thing. So the show that I'm creating for the fall is something, it's a bit more of a, a further investigation of this plant-like imagery that I've been trying to kind of create. Uh, if you're going to compare these paintings to a garden, I would say that these paintings are, they're very barbed, um, they're confrontational, they're aggressive, but they're always really um, mindful of the substrates that they occur on or they you know the all of the activities sort of within the four sort of edges of the canvas um, I want everything to be there I don't want our minds to sort of go elsewhere and so all of the activity is right there in front of you the paintings also feel as if maybe the imagery is growing out of their edges of the edges of the canvas and so things start to insert themselves inward um, from the sides and so everything kind of always points back to the center and I think that's something where I want them to feel like really present and really sort of in front of you. And again, not to, uh, I don't want them to pull you out necessarily. Um, where are they coming from? They come from a bunch of different places. I'm really influenced by a lot of painting within history. I like, you know, sort of pop abstraction, anything from like Nicholas Krushenik to um, you know, I know John Wesley's, you've mentioned him a few times on your podcast, a huge fan of his work, um, to, you know, Elizabeth Murray, and then Surrealist Bimorphism, so anything from Jean Arp to some of Kandinsky's early paintings to, um, you know, like Yves Tanguay or something. I can't pronounce his last name, so it's always awkward to say it. Tangeray? I call him Yves Tangeray. Tangeray, Tangeray, yeah. Do you? Tangeray, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, shoot your questions now. This is a good time since I got. Them oh out. no, I that that's great. I mean, I I've in looking at them, there was clearly a, like a botanical sort of like growth. Like a, to me, I was thinking about growth and like 
growth and exploration, growth and protection, because some of them do feel prickly or kind of like, you know, things that you would find in nature maybe that are, you know, pushing back or protecting themselves in a way. And and they almost, there was like, a lot of times there's a book-like quality to them or like they look like they could be on pages or something. Like these are sort of like representations of these things too because of that sort of edge that you call to in some of the work. So, I don't, yeah, they just seemed really interesting and kind of, um, but I didn't, and also the artist that you didn't mention that I thought you may be into is uh, Roger Brown. Do you like his yeah. paintings? Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The formal qualities of like stacking and the just, I mean, it's a totally different feel, but, but you're from Illinois, right? I am from Illinois. Did you spend time in Chicago, Chicago <laughs> growing up? I did. I sort of wanted to double back, though, what you said about representational, because I kind of want to make it clear that I don't necessarily see them as representations of oh, no. things. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. No, those were just images things that, that pop popped up in my... I mean, when you look at them, you know what, you know the, the sort of play of abstraction and the, you know, the vehicle of the painting. You see it. You see the kind of building of the forms and stuff. But I guess I'm just, in talking about the work, it's kind of fun to bring up things tangentially to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I'm curious though about your. Um, I wonder what what's making them. Do you think that because they have some semblance to uh, something that exists, like a flower, that you know, representation seems to be like the go-to word to sort of describe the experience that you're seeing. Hmm. You know, like. I guess maybe I'm I'm talking about that just in this instant. But if if I were there with you looking at the paintings. I would be thinking and speaking about the abstract qualities of it too. That's easier, I think, to point out when you're actually looking at individual works and then talking about the formal issues or like the things that are, you know, happening in the sort of abstraction of it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's easier to talk about the representational side of things when you're not right in front of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that must be some sort of like human connection of like conversation of, you know, and, and it's that it can be that annoying thing when people look at your paintings and they're like, oh, I see like a face in there, you know, but it's almost human nature to do that, to sort of like yeah, anthropomorphize I mean, I just, everything. We, sure, sure. And I think we just, we seek what we know. And so it's an, it's an accessible point. Um, I had this conversation, the, the, the use of the word representational is like, um, was really, really a buzzword in this one sculpture class that I had taught over the summer, who were actually really a great group. Um, and so we talked about the differentiation between like, you know, representation and symbol and sort of all of the derivatives of, you know, what, what the appearance or semblance of something within a work and, you know, kind of what it does. And I'm always sort of curious on people's take on that, um, because I think that if anything, um, it's great that it sort of looks like something else, but I'm sort of more interested in how quickly or how slowly a person sort of sees the painting and then starts to think of everything else aside from the fact that it might be a flower or might not be. Um, well, I think yeah. one of the um, one of the entry points of the the brain, the visual brain into something is to associate objects or or shapes with things they're familiar with, mm-hmm. and then understand the distance between the two. And then you that's how we. You know, because we do that with people we meet, we look at them and then we see how far away they are and we gauge their energy and then we react or we, whatever it is, you know, we kind of have like a visual, that's our first thing, you know what mm-hmm. I mean, usually. Mm-hmm. 
So in looking at the painting behind you, I think the first thing I thought was sunflower and um, like a black hole or some sort of like star that's like a, you know, one of those gas giant stars or something or, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I, it just pops into my head. I can't not think that. But then I know that it's someone painted this and it's, those are choices. So then I think about, oh, what's the exploration of the palette within that circle and those sort of shimmering thing you know and then i go into the exploration of the formal elements of the abstraction that's not related to an object that i originally uh, thought of when i see it and that's the play that's the fun mm-hmm. of seeing something that's not just a picture of something else for me you know mm-hmm. but my entry point is oh what it looks like that mm-hmm. yeah totally right or for awesome. wrong i'm sure other people don't do that at all they get lost in something else first you know Maybe it's color. Could be. I'm a fairly predictable viewer of art. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, everyone's different. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think that the way that you're approaching looking at painting, especially if something's recognizable and sort of the thing that you're attached to and the thing that you then dive deeper into is uh it's it's I don't think it's dissimilar from how I sort of see painting too so um I'm trying to make you feel better but then also agreeing with you that that's something that I'm really aware of with the work is like what am I pushing forward and then what can I kind of um produce that sort of makes you cling to the image longer aside from giving you all the information about like this is about flowers you know sort of a, a very boring show because like the question is not necessarily right. the about it's it's the how and how you know kind of the experience that you're kind of constructing as a result of some of the things that you're utilizing within the work right um in any case well your yeah, your work your work too real quick your work too is, is specifically a dance between abstraction and representational things whereas if you mm-hmm. look at a blinky palm or if you look at i don't know robert ryman that's not that doesn't enter your mind unless you're thinking of a blizzard. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just like, oh, that's he's using white paint to create that. You know, it's it's kind of is what it is. I think yeah. your your work is what's making it interesting is that it's not just an image of something, but it's clearly referring to those things or the you know an influence of forms and shapes that we may be somewhat familiar with, but there's a kind of play there, and I think that's probably. Or at least that's where I go in my mind in looking at the work. Mm-hmm. Chicago. <laughs> sure. How was it? It was. Uh, well, I grew up in Northern Illinois. So. Outside of yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you spent time there. in Chicago. Yeah. Well, wait. Where did you grow up? How far? Bit. How far away were you from Chicago? Uh, hours drive. Not bad. Just north. Yeah, the county borders Wisconsin, so I'm pretty equidistant between Milwaukee and Chicago. So uh, any Chicagoan would say. Like, you're not from Chicago. No, no way. Too far. <laughs> I was in the same state. I wasn't too far away. So it's like the the, the place that people know about in the Midwest. Uh, I was going to say yeah, pretty no. Midwestern, though. I am? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell from my accent? No, but I mean, just the location is pretty Midwestern. It's very Midwestern. Yeah. yeah. Um, and no, your, parents Brown, were, I, your parents were from there originally, or did they come, like, were they, are you from Midwesterners for a while or what how, what was the family life growing up like did you have siblings yes 
really quickly, I love Roger Brown. Learned about him in graduate school. Funny enough. So like much later on. Anyway. Right. Um, my dad is actually from the same town that I grew up in, McHenry, Illinois. And um, he met my mom because uh, while she was an exchange student um, at this local community college that they had both attended and then um, fell in love and then, you know, with a sort of a, a meandering, much more sort of complicated thread, eventually they, they ended up getting hitched. Did she, did she unexchange or did she just stay or did she have to go like kind of come back or? Yeah. So what happened was my, my dad wanted to marry my mom. So he, you know, asked both sets of parents who were um, pretty resistant to the idea. And my uh, mom's father in his, actually it was like a really smart idea that he told my dad that if he stayed with my mom while she finished school because she was only half halfway into her undergraduate degree that you know he would give his consent to marry my mom and so <laughs> they were actually brokered apart. a deal <laughs> yeah yeah I think it was a test to sort of see how commit my committed my dad was because yeah. they had only really been dating for six months so they did it you know they wrote letters and there's this whole box of letters that they had and they would make like one minute phone calls because, you know, long distance back then cost a million dollars. Oh, yeah, it was really crazy, and right? It was really crazy. No and Skype uh, back then. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and she finished school and came back and they got married. And then you're the oldest? No, uh, my parents decided to adopt my sister. Um, and then shortly thereafter, uh, I was a little bit of a surprise because they weren't um, able to have children. So uh, I'm well, the youngest. I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> they had you. Yeah. No, was, was there a big gap between age-wise? No, my sister is born, she's about a year older than me. Okay. Yeah, so she came along, you know, made them relax or whatever, and then then I came really quickly. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's... That's really that's cool. pretty common. That happens actually a lot with adopted adoptions. People trying to have children, and then all of a sudden something changes once they adopt, and it's, it's yeah. pretty. It's not unheard of. Just kind of funny to talk about. In regards right. to my sister, right? Yeah, she always such, she likes to you know give herself the credit that she's she's the reason I exist, which is probably oh yeah. She's like you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Are you guys still tight? Uh, my sister and I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. She's in California. She's um, she's a freelance photographer, and she's uh, been really active in the wine industry for quite some time now, along with her husband. And nice. uh, we're tight in uh, like the relationship, but the distance obviously is pretty yeah, pretty far. Yeah, as far as you could get. Any, well, actually, Hawaii would be yeah further. You know, the the outer area of Alaska <laughs> is farther, probably. Yeah, the continental United States. <laughs> so. Um, so growing up, was was it like? What was your was it suburban and kind of you know an easygoing childhood, or was it full of you know something excitement? I mean, I, I would say sure we're in the vicinity of Chicago, but my the city the town that I grew up in and like where I went to school it's pretty rural. I mean, yeah. a lot of cornfields, pretty flat, not a whole lot to do actually. I think that boredom was really important though in informing how I process things and also. 
um, sort of my willingness to you know activate or engage with my imagination. Um, yeah. Not to sound like Barney, but I it was fine. It was it was it was very Midwestern. I mean, everyone around me was like really good at sports. And sure. I was definitely like the bench warmer um, <laughs> who would you know conjure spells to make the other team like suck which you know that's impressive every team needs a good spell conjurer it's like really embarrassing that i admitted that but yeah it was it was fine you know you got to do like the football games and uh it got cold in the fall and you did the dances and you had all of the everything that you would sort of maybe imagine like a rural upbringing might sort of afford i mean obviously it was a very kind of white area so those those things were something that um that sort of relationship had being uh, one of a few people who were not white it was something that we had to sort of navigate. But you know, we did we did fine. I, yeah. I actually came out more out you know unscathed than perhaps my sister or my mom. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, in in when I visit, I love it, and it brings back a lot of memories. And there's like smells and sights that are you know just very rewarding to kind of conjure like nostalgic feelings yeah and then then i come back to new york and i'm like so much more happy (laughs) (laughs) it's like a reset button right yeah now in those in those times of boredom remember boredom Mm -hmm. can we just reflect for a minute (laughs) on what it was like to be bored (laughs) thanks you think of the past Uh, (laughs) no more boredom (laughs) thanks twitter um so in those moments of boredom were you sketching or you know, were you thinking about art or being creative or was that something pushed till later? Maybe sometimes, like making things. Uh, I spent a lot of time outside. You, you know, I think about my daughter and what the experience will be growing up in New York City and how much independent time she'll actually be afforded. Because uh, frankly, I can't imagine permitting her to sort of walk down and do whatever she wants at like in fifth grade and just like go to the park by herself that seems really scary to me uh but you know for my sister and I it was really just like "Mm, see you later like opening the door and then you know eight hours later we'll come back and so I think that you know you you found your own entertainment but I also think that because there's a lot of sort of individual time there was nothing to sort of entertain you you had to create um some sort of excitement and yeah, I, I, sure, drawing was part of it, but playing outside, building forts, kind of making up different sort of worlds or scenarios or whatever is was more my speed. Um, yeah, I, I, like, did you do sports, I guess, when you were bored? Like, what did you do? The same thing, we built forts, a lot of snow forts in the backyard. That was a big thing. Hmm. We used to make like snowball battle forts and stuff like that. But yeah, we did carnivals. Like we would have like little fun carnivals and played sports, basketball, soccer, wiffle ball, mm-hmm. you know, get in fights, play around and, you know, just be like a kid, like a boy who, you know, whose parents said just be home when it gets dark, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever that entails. But yeah, there's a lot of boredom, a lot of creativity of just like just finding something to do, you know. Which, and yeah. we didn't have, like, we, I grew up pretty, you know, not poor, but we didn't have much. So, mm-hmm. you know, you just make do with what you have. Sure. I mean, but do you, like, recollect actually, like, sitting down and be like, I'm, I'm going to draw, you know, right now? No, never. No, well, yeah. not never, but I mean, not when I was, like, little, little. Yeah, yeah. I started painting in 
junior high school, maybe mm-hmm. sixth or seventh grade. And I would paint like the buildings around my house. So that was the first like art, art thing. I was never a huge drawer. Clearly it shows like I'm not <laughs> gifted at drawing. <laughs> I can get by, but uh, it's not like, you know, it doesn't flow out of me. I would give yourself a little bit more credit than that. I mean, it's not like you're, you know, like doing some chicken scratch up in that joint over there. <laughs> no, but it's <laughs> all some, like... There's some, like, manual skill. It's it's kind of assisted. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? It's not... Like, I wasn't, like, a gifted drawer. Like, uh, I'll give you an example. There was a kid in my high school art class who was just... Mm-hmm. He was so good at drawing people. And, like, he would get the proportion. He just naturally... You know, some people can just get the proportions just right, and they understand mm-hmm. the shading, and they do... I didn't know how to do that mine came out a little just a little off <laughs> which is pretty great now like i think oh that's it's great but back then it was like yeah it just didn't come easy to me but i did start to do like paintings of buildings and use like funky colors and i you know i, I had my thing and i stuck with it and really to be good at something or to to invest i think you you really just you know if you just keep going and going and going you you just get stronger. You know what I mean? You get more confident in the way you want to do what you want to do. Ideally. Ideally. Yeah, that's true. I can always go back the other way. Well, how was your, how I'm interested in where you grew up in that kind of, you know, not a big, huge town or anything. How was your art class in high school? Like what was your high school art teacher like? Or did you Um, have art? I did have art. art. It, there was I was in art one, two, and three, and four. That's a lot of art. Year. Yeah. <laughs> no, it corresponds to the year that you're there. Right. So it's like, you know. Uh, no, I I made some really great friends in art class, especially by the time you got to like year four, you you figured out what the other who the other uh, artists were. Oh, it's the same like, crew, like, pretty much each year. Yeah, kind of. There was more people in art one than art four. Yeah. Like art four, it was like you made it or something. Right. But you know, when you when I say you made it, you sort of did the same assignments. They were just a little bit like bigger, <laughs> right? At that point, so no, my my art high like my high school art education wasn't the best. Um, I had a lot more. It was like the one time in my life that I made an oil painting. It's atrocious. It's like the ugliest thing I've ever produced in my life. Isn't that hard? Um, the first uh, one, you're just like, ooh. what is this stuff? Yeah, I you know for me it was like one and done. I was like, it's all over my hands. Um, I love I love the way oil painting looks. You know, I have some students at Fordham who, you know, opt out of the acrylic painting thing. Uh, Fordham doesn't have um, a ventilation um, kind of. It's the studios aren't equipped with ventilation, so we yeah. can, can't do oil painting. But I have some students who uh, are defiant and they want to do it, so they do most of their work at home. You know, with windows open or whatever they do. Soldiers. And they come in with the. Yeah, <laughs> they come up with these paintings and they're so much, they just look so fantastic because I feel like, you know, with acrylic to really get that surface to, to do something aside from look like, you know, sort of flat plastic, you have to work with it a lot more. Whereas oil, it just doesn't have that luminous um, surface quality. So, yeah, I mean, I guess going back to the high school um, program, not a whole lot. I mean, I knew I was interested in art and the nice thing about being in that, um, in that group was that it sort of pushed me into thinking that I would want to do it when I got to college. Um, aside from that, you know, I still have all of the goofy drawings that I made. And those are really wonderful to, like, look at. But um, not not so great. I, you know, sometimes some of the people on your show actually talked about how 
you know, amazing their high school teachers were in propelling them forward and to really kind of energize them when they got to college. But my excitement really happened when I got older, um, especially, you know, when I was an undergrad in um, graduate school. Well, in undergrad, were you, what was, what was your, your start, basically? What did you think, this is what I want to do? Or, or did you have no idea at first? I don't think I had any idea at first because I had no connection to what an artist really was. I mean, everything, my only knowledge of artists happened or occurred as a result of going to a museum. You know, I, you know, I was familiar with Impressionism painting because my parents were really into it. And so we'd see shows at the RNC Chicago. We'd like dress up and like commute in and check out the show and get dinner and then go back. But aside from that, it's, I had no real sense of what a contemporary artist, if whether it existed or whether or not, um, you know, how you could pursue that, it wasn't even an option. And so I took a class with Richard Kalina, and he would talk about his work and the fact that he was an artist making things and was actually having shows, and I'd like go see his show, and it made the pursuit feel really tangible. And that was a really huge moment for me. And then not only him, but everybody in the department was making work. Um, it was like a big aha moment. And then you sort of get into it. You know, you go get Art in America and you read all the things and the art forums and yeah. try to kind of catch up. Isn't that funny, that moment when you're like, wait, people just do this? Yeah. Like that's their gig is they just make art all day? Yeah. And because, I, I, I don't mean, think it's, I, I was just going to say, I don't think it's immediately necessarily like, even enticing it's like confusing at first like wow you you would just make art mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like so what craft fair are you showing these at? <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah because you don't know how the whole thing works you know no no yeah and yeah so i i, I guess that was a, that was really cool and uh, going to shows was really really amazing uh, i remember there was one person one professor who took us on a kind of a gallery tour of Chelsea and I'd never been to Chelsea before I was 19 and the fact that it was free was blew my mind because everything oh, I felt yeah. like in New York you had to pay to do anything it's still baffling isn't it if you really I think know. about it it's, remember it's like they used really to have I don't know if it was like that when you went but they used to have wine and like cheese and stuff at openings they do don't they still i mean sometimes cheese, it's weird because i always feel like your breath gets really bad after having too much cheese at openings but like wine you know it's like let's bring that back no it's mostly beer people people still do that right yeah and it's still baffling it's like wait free free stuff <laughs> <laughs> oh you're talking Doesn't about the baffling much. it being free not having being charged yeah that's that's fair yeah in new york like it's mm -hmm. a rare thing i was when i first started going to openings in like the late nineties, I remember they were, I remember going to Donald Bachelor's opening in Soho, these giant paintings. It was very intimidating, like the Soho galleries mm -hmm. and there were like drinks. And I was like, wait, these are free. I mean, I didn't drink at that point. I, you know, I was young, but I was like, people could just come in and drink. And I was like, why isn't this place overrun with people off the street just <laughs> coming in and drink? It was so confusing to me. <laughs> 
You know, there are like regulars. I I don't know if you've noticed it, but there was like, uh, maybe this is more of a pre-pandemic thing, but there were definitely a group of people that would regularly show up at openings that I would, that are definitely not art crowd people, like you could tell. They would just, they they love to participate in the the free booze. And I have to say, like, I can't blame them because yeah, sure. You have like a nice Thursday evening. (laughs) It's a beautiful space, some interesting stuff on the walls and free drinks. I mean, sometimes interesting, but yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's a stretch. <laughs> that you were keeping it real there. Okay, so wait, where were we? We were talking about high school art class, and then we yeah, we, to Chelsea. We, got, we went into undergrad, but you know it's cool. Oh yeah, so with um, when did you have that moment of like, okay, now I'm going to start working in the studio, and like, was it a slow transition, or was it something to where you're like, oh, I want to do this, I want to. It was a slow transition. I, I think most parents like to uh, recommend that their children don't pursue visual art because of all of the stigmas that are attached to it. Right. And I still, I still get students who have this inkling that they want to pursue visual art or paint, and they're like, "Oh, so what do you do?" And you know, my parents, I you know, I feel like I need to do this advertising thing or this marketing thing to sort oh, of yeah. supplement uh, the production of you know art and. I get it. You know, there's real concerns there. You have to make money after you get out. You can't just like not, <laughs> especially right. if you want to be in New York City. So um, I get that. They had real, real concerns. And my dad, being more of a businessly inclined or business minded person, was very hesitant. So I got this business minor to kind of placate to their wants or wishes. And so, yeah, I was very slow. I got into art not really feeling entirely committed until sort of towards the end um, I got an internship at a gallery right out of undergrad that I think really kind of solidified my interest in, in pursuing it like wait we're in New York fully. Mm-hmm. it didn't yeah. turn you off no it didn't <laughs> you know I I and it's it was when people have horrible experiences at their gallery internships that are unpaid like mine was it's usually terrible but uh, no, I interned at the Frederica Taylor Gallery. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Frederica has passed, and she was really wonderful. And the artist assistant, who's a painter, um, she—they were really great to me. I got to That's assist in great. a wall painting. Um, uh, the artist Mary Lum, who I'm still friends with today, and I, I couldn't have asked for a better situation. They really opened my eyes to what the world could be and how there's so many people really invested in um, showing work and being a part of the art, you know, the display of artwork. And it was great. And you so hit the, uh, the art gallery intern jackpot. I did. I feel like I there's, was not so too, lucky. there's not too many of those. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was so, so lucky. I, I'm very grateful for that experience because I was also had, you know, I had a job on the side that I had, you know, I was getting paid for so I could exist or something and um that was awful (laughs) so the the gallery internship was really saving me at that point oh that it's the perfect storm then but wait so (laughs) when you graduated were you you were just like okay i'm going to new york well i went to school in new york city at fordham university and then um i stayed then right 
And then after undergrad, after I did the internship, I went and got a post back at the University of Chicago because I really wanted to develop my portfolio more towards the application for graduate school. And then um, I got into Cornell University, and that sort of led me back to the East Coast again. So I sort of bounced back and forth between the Midwest and here for a while. Did you, when you were in school, I was, I I didn't go to school in New York City. Mm-hmm. So I always wonder about, you know, that dynamic. And it, and I guess, you know, it's great because all the gallery, like stuff is there. You see it. You can, you know, you're around mm-hmm. it. But I also imagine it's probably almost like unconsciously more intimidating or more pressure in the sense that you are kind of in the spot where it's happening. You know what I mean? So in other words, it's like it would be like if you're doing stand up and, you know, in like Louisville or something and you're getting your start and then once you get you know your reps in then you move to New York mm-hmm. or like trying stand up from New York when you're really young must be so intimidating because like it's the spot you know what I mean yeah I guess maybe you don't think about it though as much yeah. uh because you're one in a lot of you know in a however many people that are trying to pursue something so yeah I suppose that's intimidating that could be sort of stifling but it's also it, it no one cares <laughs> Yeah. At that age. Um, I, I kind of segued into the city a little bit different, too. So Fordham, actually, when I got accepted to undergrad, there was a campus in Terrytown, uh, New York, and it was an all-women's campus that has since closed. Uh, so I started there, and then I really committed myself to get into the city and transfer to the Lincoln Center campus, uh, yeah. where I, I actually teach now. And um, so I had a little bit of introduction into the city before I actually came here. So like as far as like geography is concerned, I got a little bit used to it, sort of like what was around and everything. But as far as art is concerned, I think it was more of just being really naive. Like I was interested and I definitely learned a lot about different artists and what was happening within contemporary arts. But it seemed because it seemed so ahead of me, like kind of far reaching at that point. I was really just eager to like absorb and um, I wasn't feeling the pressure of trying to be famous or feeling the pressure of Instagram, let's say, to like post my like really crappy paintings from sophomore year to, you know, show that I'm going to, I'm serious. And so that pressure is not there and the eyes aren't there. So no, it, it was totally fine. It was actually a wonderful place to be because you have all those resources and those people around. You really get to pull in and, and take a look at what's happening. Um, it's also, it was like so exciting. Yeah. You know, buildings are bigger, everything, you know, I, not to say Energy. that I, I never, yeah, I never, tra- it's not to say that I never traveled before that point, but New York City's got its own thing going that, um, you know, has obviously, I love it because oh, why would I have come back? It's like the most brutal place to live in some ways um, in terms of if you ever want to save money, for example, it's like yeah. kind of hard. <laughs> it's not an easy place to live. But not then I, I feel like that, probably weeds out a lot of people who don't you know you can't just kind of like half-ass it you it's hard to do that because you just always have to be you know going yeah sure and you were up for that yeah (laughs) no i I mean i think the reason why not (laughs) yeah exactly the reason i was saying that earlier too is because whenever i was in undergrad in pennsylvania i would visit Mm -hmm. the city and i knew a couple kids who went to sva and they were so distracted by graffiti culture and like the art galleries and the scene. And they just seemed, it seemed to be like they were thrown into this deep pool too early and they were just, you know, getting lost in it or something. But that mm. might have just been them. You know what I mean? And everyone's different and everyone reacts differently to it. 
but I it just I remember being almost like thinking to myself like I don't know that I would be able to it would just be too too much at that age for me if I were in New York City for undergraduate school yeah I mean maybe it's something to do with the fact that they were also in an arts program and so they were really around people that were competitive and really into it and yeah. maybe that sometimes could be really scary and stifling because it takes a certain amount of like understanding there's a vulnerable um you know you kind of put yourself in a vulnerable position by putting forward for critique something that you took a lot of time and energy and thought to put into and then you realize it was really god awful right (laughs) you have to sort of do that step in order to discover that point and that's really kind of crippling for a lot of people and i i get that um especially for those you know when i get students at fordham some of them are never have never participated in a critique ever and so to have something kind of very um you know, not aggressively, but like just quickly put down as maybe try again. It, it's it's tricky. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine sure. It is. It could be. It could be scary. Yeah. And but. Let me guess. You let those kids have it in those first critiques. You just get them. Oh, my students. Yeah, you just get them ready. <laughs> I just ask a lot of questions. Oh, that's nice. See how they answer. Yeah asking questions (laughs) so um being well now being in park slope and in making your work do you feel like you've your work has changed from the is your work environmental at all like do you feel like it it takes on the pace and the the feeling of your current situation or do you feel like it's kind of like hermetic in a way in its mind space and it's not so affected by location or and i don't know like you know how travel factors in or but what is the work open to or is it kind of like its own sort of ecosystem Hmm. weird question right yeah it's totally weird well it's just it's a question that popped in my mind when i looked at your work and was no i don't think it's regional i mean if we're talking about you know if I moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn. If there's a really distinct like difference between the two, I, I would say no in terms of location. Um, I think I'm really influenced by people, uh, peop- mentors specifically. When I was in graduate school, <clears throat> um, I had a mentor who's really uh, and still is a, a, a huge influence on how I think about painting. And um, I think that stays with me more than than a lot and having conversations with other artists about what they're doing I think that that is influential or impactful on on the work um sure I mean I guess with 2020 being what it was hermetic of course I spent March between March and like what June or July pretty much locked up in my house I mean like my husband and I really saw a lot of each other um (laughs) that's the true wasn't that year a true test of a uh of a partnership really yeah for sure yeah you know if you can make it through that you might be good with anything i think (laughs) (laughs) um but i i mean i i don't know if i wouldn't i don't i don't necessarily know if that that 
that part being like a hermit a little bit for a short period of time necessarily affected the work, at least not something that I've completely registered yet. Maybe sure in 10 years, I'll look back at this work and be like, wow, all of these things are really contained. Maybe there's something about the fact that I was at home the whole time or whatever. But I think that even though these paintings and images seem to be contained within their substrates, um, there is this feeling of pushing outward and um, there's something happening there kind of shows a display of energy that is not necessarily allied with maybe some of the associations of being kind of um, closed in or something. So uh, it's a difficult question because I, I don't know exactly how to answer it. Um, but I, I think that eventually maybe I'll do, you know, sort of horizon landscapes that seem to like be vistas that go on forever and feel really, no, I really guess, wonderful. I guess <laughs> I meant it more in the sense of, of, of sort of energy of a location, not so much like literal, like the environment. So in other words, like in, in hermetic, not in a sense of being a hermit, but more of a sense of like the, the world is sort of like it's self-generating and it's not so affected by changes or the, the temperature of the outside the studio. And I'll give you an example of when I was in grad school, I was making paintings based on like math formulas and each painting was like its own world. And it didn't matter where I was, snowing rain well nothing nothing mattered outside it was just kind of like i was building these worlds and they were like self-generating you know what i mean and then like when i went to skowhegan i started painting the stuff around me i got more in interested in our environment so they became more a discussion between you know the actual world that i was like engaging in and the but in the case of your work i was wondering and looking at them if they had their kind of like their own energy or if it was you know, dependent more on you and your sensibilities of day to day or where you are, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like some performers, like if you're in a play, you might have a bad day and you bring that into the work or you're just, you know, this is the character. I'm doing the character as the character's written on the script, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's really hard to um, sort of divorce yourself from things that are happening in your life. Uh, it seeks its, it sort of seeps its way into the work, um, whether conscious or unconsciously. Um, I think that, sure, you know, we could say that being in sort of an urban situation, there's a lot of sort of feelings of um, being in proximity to other people. There's density. There is an energy that's very distinct from maybe, let's say, an urban, like a rural area. But I wouldn't um, say that the work is necessarily reliant on those feelings. Um, when I like sort of tackle like how I want a piece to look, um, I think, yeah, maybe it is sort of self-generative. Like what is this flower-like form require to feel really impending or doom-like? Uh, what is this, you know, sort of fluttery star abstraction require to feel um, like, you know, for the lack of a better word, whimsical or sort of far-reaching or um, kind of magical. I hate to say it. You know, what are what are what are the requirements of the the painting, and like, what do I need to choose to make that sort of expression sort of feel present? Um, when I say like people, and I had mentioned earlier about the distinction between like about versus how you know, about talking about about a painting, what the painting's about, is it different than, you know, the how, how it is, the question. Uh, that's a thought that, you know, came from um, Carl Ostendarp, who was my, my advisor at Cornell, and really understanding that 
the conversation within abstraction can really it's it's difficult to think about the aboutness of the thing it's the questions are much more rooted in sort of an abstracted experience and so you have to kind of contend with you know stuff that sort of indicates it in some way but not necessarily like explains it um so i'm interested in that and i think that when you're talking about different mindsets either based on location or based on like whether i'm in a studio over there or here or maybe um whether I'm conscious of something that's occurring like kind of politically outside and then how that's seeping into the work. Um, that's, that happens, yeah. Um, but I, I would say that, will I say that this painting is about the politics of my sort of biracial identity? Um, not explicitly, no. Um, and it's a little bit of a roundabout sort of explanation of perhaps readdressing your question. I get it. Totally. And I'm thinking that, you know, it's, it's, a diff- it's a difficult thing to quantify, I guess. But I think interesting work will generate questions in the viewer that are unanswerable in a way. Or, you know what I mean? Or that sort of set off, they trigger a, an investigation in their own mind of what, why, how, and, you know, all those questions, but they're unanswerable, really, because it's contingent upon you know, their interpretation and then the disconnect between that and what the artist is making. So it's kind of like that conversation. I think that's the really interesting and engaging thing about art, you know, is that that in-between zone between the artist, what they're thinking, what they're making, and the viewer and how they're interpreting interpreting that. And then, you know, the that that gap is kind of where some of that magic happens, you know, ideally. Where does the magic happen for you in your work? When I when I leave the studio, <laughs> when it's over. No, I'm kidding. Um, it, it for me it happened. I'm so selfish. Uh, so <laughs> so I want to make work that I'm interested in, right? And that um, is my relationship with the, the way I'm thinking about the world. And then I'm also selfish because I want to, when I'm working, I want to work on something to where I zone out and I hit, I, I've, it's recently come up and I didn't realize, I came to this really late, but it's called like a flow state or something. It, hmm. It's like this idea of like that artists have this, they hit this t- moment when they're working to where they almost turn their brain off. And they just get mm-hmm. lost in that. That's so called I, flow. That's a flow state. Flow state. Yeah, it's when people were talking about that phenomenon of, like, when you're just kind of like your brain turns off when you're doing something. Like athletes, maybe if they're, you know, like a runner's high or something, where you kind of like don't out. I don't know. And I get that in the studio if I'm like really working for a long time to where I don't think about my bills. I don't think about you know, this, the stuff I have to do, I'm just lost in this like kind of, you know, um, it, it's, it's like heaven, you know, you, you're, it's, it's for me, it's true meditation and it's like turning off your brain. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like magical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've used the word magical a lot. Like I get it. Like, <laughs> no, I, I, it is, it is. I mean, yeah. that's just like whenever you watch a magician, and I love watching magic, when they do a trick and something disappears, I mean, there's just that, like, that moment of awe and just like, whoa, well, that's, you know what I mean? I, I suppose, but they're illusionists, we do, not, too. Not, not magician, like, 
they don't actually do magic. We're I illusionists think artists are more, too. We I make, suppose. You're an illusionist. Whole, I'm a it's, magician. It's called artifice. It's all fake. It's all art. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> imagined. It's not real. Just like magic is, you know, it, it's an illusion. <laughs> Isn't that the same thing? No, it's very different, I guess. But yeah, but maybe I love that, that the difference between illusion an illusionist and a magician and that certain artists are doing one or the other <laughs> or different <laughs> elements of one or the other. There's this book that was recommended to me by a friend. Um, it's called Sapiens. I don't know if you've ever read it. I haven't. But <clears throat> one of the, like one of the earliest things in the book and um, that I, I really hold on to because I love it is that, um, you know, Sapiens, we have this unique ability what distinguishes us from other life forms is that we have this unique ability to create fictions and as a result of creating fictions you know we can um, sort of produce economies and different ways of exchanging monetary things and whatever whatever but then it's also like for in the, the context of art it's a way of kind of producing a lie in a lot of ways um, I mean I don't, I don't know I like that I like those sort of are something that's inherent within us to construct a, a falsehood, a fiction, something that is not necessarily real. Um, unless you're a minimalist, I suppose that's a different conversation. But um, yeah. Maybe yeah, but we're into what we're cool into. Thought. And that's like a cool thing. Like science fiction is all, you know, people who love those kind of movies just love that sort of, it's not real. You know, it's there's, there's a sort of imagination to that. I'll give you another example. One of my favorite bird is the mockingbird. Because he just fakes other birds' calls, which I think is amazing. <laughs> is it faking or is it mimicking? Well, yeah, mimicking. Sorry, mimicking. <laughs> but it mimics other birds, and it's pretty good. And it also will throw in a car alarm, too, just for good measure, <laughs> which I think is so amazing. <laughs> sorry, back to your artwork. So what kind of brushes do you use? <laughs> <laughs> little ones. Little ones? Baby Super ones? Super cheap little ones. Uh, you know, I if you have a recommendation... No, I, I, you've been using these small little ones. I think you're serious. I think you're trying to be rhetorical, but I'll actually tell you about the brushes. No, I, I think it's great to land on that because we've brought that, <laughs> I've brought that up a couple of times. So we, we should not let that go unanswered. I think it's interesting to know. Yeah. I buy a lot of them. They're very small. You blow um, through them, like get the cheapies and just use them and get rid of them, right? Yeah, because I think that there's a little bounce to the, the tips of them that I really like. And yeah. so again, eventually they get hairy because I'm, you know, a lot of, a lot of stroking. Um, but they're pretty tiny. Um, and you're using the acrylic ones, right? Those sort of synthetic. Yep, they're I synthetic. Brush they're talk. tiny. <laughs> there's like, it's like Princeton or something is like the brand. So it makes you seem you know, educated in that way. Yeah. And <laughs> like three, bu three bucks, you know, each, um, so all you have to do is give it a fancy name. People yeah. Will buy, yeah. It's know. like, Oh, Windsor and Newton. <laughs> the habit. I got the habit brush set at Blick for three bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's where I go. I go towards, um, I've tried a, a range of different brushes when I was using just acrylic paint. Um, you know, I, I use something a little bit more bristly, but these are these are much more supple. They act a little bit more like watercolor brushes, yeah. and they can sort of saturate pretty um, substantially and get a stroke really right. So Wait, so you're using I'm... oil paint? No, I'm not. <laughs> I can't make oil paintings. <laughs> Just all water-based? It's all water-based, like flash and gouache and um, ink. 
sometimes acrylic, but it's too shiny. So I sort of steer clear from that a little bit. Golden has a new sofa. <laughs> the sponsor <laughs> of the podcast has a new line of paints called So Flat, and it is awesome. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you use it? I've used it, yeah. I don't like, always go for the mat. I don't mm-hmm. always need the mat, but when I do, these things are pretty... So, like, are you using great. the mat, like, are you using black? Cause oh, like no. Matte. Here's a hack. You might know this. Black gesso is the best black paint that's matte. Yeah, but don't you... Are you afraid, like, it's going to mar? It does. The problem with, like, super, super, super matte black things is it that... It shows, yeah. You know, the, yeah, the capacity for, like, our dead skin to go on it it like happens immediately that's why i put but a bearer around my paintings so no one can like <laughs> it's at the club the velvet rope don't touch that thing that's black gesso <laughs> if you breathe on it it makes a mark yeah I know but what I'm saying. it eats light it's like a black hole uh, there's yeah. zero reflection yeah it's just because you I, haven't gotten va- like you know vanta black yet right you don't I want wa- that oh yeah 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 i've got i was psychological uh, i was traumatized i remember i did this gigantic painting of a nightscape Mm-hmm. And it, there was a billboard and um, it was kind of, it was black paint. So it was kind of streaky, you know, like you, I mm. didn't spray it. It was just had some streaks. And I remember sending it to the gallery that I showed at at the time. And they were like, yeah, it's a little streaky. I don't think we can, do you, you should fix this. And I was young, you know, so I was like, oh, okay, send it back. <laughs> really? Yeah. What a, Okay. Hey, they they were honest. I was gonna Although, hate on your former gallery, but to, yeah, well, that was the tip of the iceberg. But the, to the <laughs> to their credit, it did look a little like you know, Streaky. it looked like it should have what been. Were flat. What were you using? It was just using? like like Mars black or whatever it was. You oh, know? But, so like acrylic though. It was acrylic, and it was a large expanse, so ah, there gotcha. had to be some brushstrokes on it. But then when I first saw the black gesso, I was like, oh my god, that just eats light. It's like a black mm-hmm. hole. <laughs> and then I realized that if you, you know, touch it, it, it leaves a mark. Yeah. I used to uh, create these um, really tight obstructions that were black gouache. They're on paper, though, you know, black right. gouache. And then I would use a pencil, a really, really hard leaded pencil to create these like really thin lines. And uh, I had to give up on it because every single drawing would end up having like my hand, like I would have to start drawing like, you know, with my elbow oh, vertically Jesus. in the air just so that I wouldn't smudge it or something right. or get my flesh on it. Um, yeah, that was short lived. I can't, I can't, I can't deal. I love the way that, um, like you had mentioned how really flat paint or matte paint absorbs light. And it actually is like really wonderful in a space that has a lot of ambient light sort of coming in as it shifts your painting sort of retains its sort of richness, whereas like something glossy has a tendency to reflect. And, um, you know, I like, I like keep, keeping it, keeping it flat. Try that so flat stuff. Seriously. I'm not saying that just because <laughs> I'm in with them, but it's pretty... Hey, I recommend, you know, if we're going to go there, you know, like little product placement, I totally make my students buy Golden. It's like through and through. It's the pigment dispersion like wonderful. Yeah, I feel bad. I, like I know when I was in undergrad, I bought these craft paints at Michael's that were like mm-hmm. super cheap. And mm-hmm. the paintings were just like, I don't they. I mean, you could tell, like the color wasn't that great, but I was using muted colors, so it kind of worked, but the quality was so bad. Like I, I didn't realize it then, but I'd have to put on like five coats to get the stuff opaque mm. and then use gold and you realize there's so much pigment in there that you just do one coat. But I would think I'm saving money, but I didn't have to, 
buy like 10 times as much paint to do what I needed to do. So, you know, you get mm-hmm. what you pay for, I guess. You know. No, I think it's true. Cause I would even say, you know, no offense to like Liquitex, but like um, a lot of their student grade series, that basic series that always ends up in the studios. I just like, you know, kind of freak out. Um, and the students don't believe me that there's a real difference in the experience of how you actually put it onto canvas and sort of what you're actually saving by buying something like that. But totally. it's like syrup when it comes out of the tube. I'm like, oh, good. Yeah, no. Um, again, no offense to, sorry, Liquitex people. Calling them out. Like your, yeah, it's like, oh, God, is that if that's your next sponsor? Like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no words on that. But it, I used to be aggressive about it and say, like, you got to buy nice. But then I realized, you know, not, and everyone has the money and school's expensive. So, and <clears throat> they're is. not, you know, like I didn't bang out any Rembrandts in college. So, you know, it was, <laughs> I think I, the bonfire I created with them afterwards, it didn't matter what the pigment was. <laughs> you know, it's the second time you brought a Rembrandt in the casual conversation. It's weird. Is it, is it, I don't usually yeah. call the Rembrandt out. Yeah. This is like, I just imagine a lot of brown. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah. Van Dyke brown. Some grisailles. Mummy, mummy brown. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I wasn't painting like Rembrandt ever, um, <laughs> <laughs> like big noses and like fuzzy features. Yeah, yeah and, and chapeaus and dark light. Chapeau. <laughs> um, yeah. So getting back to you and your work. So yeah. what do you? Let's transition from your paintbrushes to what you're making for your show because you have a show coming up. I do. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it up. No, I, I'm. I'm. The, the work that's behind me is on it's not to- totally done yet but this is this will be in the show no oh, that's um, a sham we were talking about this whole podcast and it's not done it's <clears> yeah habit. I know I mean it's, it's you're an illusionist <laughs> <laughs> no I'm a liar <laughs> <laughs> same thing yeah no this is just sort of this one's in process and um, you know I have some other ones that are sort of finished in the rack but you can kind of get like a little peek of that one nice um, yeah, uh, barbed things like prepare. It'll be it'll be a lot of um, sort of organic, um, sort of near pop, near surrealist bimorphism work. Um, not with the same sort of automatic impetus, like the impetus of like autom- like what aut- is that word? Aut- automatism that maybe the surrealists really lauded. Yeah, but. Um, I think that I, I see that work as an entry point. I think a lot of artists do that right now. Like surrealism seems to be sort of, or at least calling their work sort of surrealist in terms of its impulses seems to be like a thing at the moment. Um, maybe I'm trying to give myself the credit of coming from it from a different sort of standpoint, but it might not be. I think it probably is. Do you have a title for the show already in your mind? I do. You I don't do. have to release it. I'm not going to. Don't I release the Kraken. You got to save that. Yeah. For the I but I get like I will build a show around a title. You know what yeah. I mean, which is like an idea. Well, I was curious cuz you you had read or I think you had read it cuz it was I thought it was quoting a book title um in Praise of Shadows for one of your exhibitions, which is a, really, a book that I really love. It's a great um, book. Did you sort of create your show as a result of reading that that literature or was it Yes, it was kind of like it was referential because that work was all images that I had taken when I was staying in Japan for, for like six weeks. So the, the idea is, is kind of like this flip because, you know, that book is about kind of like the appreciating the unseen and all that. So 
every time I go to Japan and I take photos and I show people there, like my family there, these pictures, and they're like, oh, that's weird, or that's cool that you took that photo. Like, it's things that they would never notice because it's just the day to day there. But as a foreigner, like, I see it differently. So、mm. it was kind of like the flip thing. So it was just that jump off point. Great. I think it, plus, it's, it's a great title. It is a great, it's a really great title. It's a really great book. And it's nice that you spend so much time in Japan. Did you stand, spend time with your family? Is that? Yeah. I mean, our, my extended family lives there. So we, since, you know, early 2000s, have been going pretty much every year. And then I did a little teaching there, I did a summer program there. And、um, yeah, I love it there.、Mm-hmm. Not does, right. How does. Go ahead. What? Oh, I was、oh, going to、no, say, not、ahead. right now with like the Olympics and COVID and stuff. It's a little、oh, tricky. Oh, yeah. Did you、Hopefully. read the article about the,、um, the recent article about the, the gymnasts, or not, excuse me, not the gymnasts, but、um, Naomi Osaka and some of the other、um, kind of biracial or multiracial. I didn't, I didn't see that article. No. Oh, so really interesting, just in terms of、um, how Japan is kind of contending with, because they're such a homogen, you know, homogeneous culture. And so how they're、um, kind of reacting or contending with the, you know, sort of n- new、uh, sort of faces of,、yeah. you know, Japanese representation, especially within the Olympics and things like、oh, that. Oh, does, does Naomi. Represent Japan in the Olympics?、Um, I th- want to say yes, but I could be wrong. It was more of just the fact that they're, they're, they're,、yes. Jap- they're ch- quote unquote Japanese, but they're. Yes. But they,、um, yeah. a- according to some Japanese, don't look it. so... Right. Yeah,、anyway. it's a, that's a complicated sort of thing. Well, it's a lengthier conversation for sure. It, it, it is, it, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm sure you've had a lot of firsthand experience with. Have you, do you go back? I do. I do. I,、yeah. go, I go back as、uh, obviously not recently, but we try to go about once a year to、yeah. see family and everything. My whole、Was、mom's, like her whole side of the family is still there. Where were they? Were they Kansai or where, where were they from?、Uh, kind of all over the place. My mom is originally from the Sendai area, so、okay. northern Japan.、Yeah. And then,、um, We have family in Osaka, between Osaka and Kobe, so we go there, which is fun because you know, they like to eat food and they're food. loud and wonderful people. Food and comedy.、Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we kind of go all around. Are you, are you, do you come go all around? You- yeah. We, my fam- extended family is from our, their Kansai gene, so they're from the south. So it's food. Oh, great. And it's, you know, yeah. Are you a、uh, okin- okonomiyaki purist? Do you like the noodles or do you like the. What's your favorite kind?、Oh, okonomiyaki. We had it for dinner tonight. That's why I'm asking. Oh, man. I. Are you not I don't even. I don't even know I've ever had an okonomiyaki with noodles in it. I mean, I guess, no, I have. Yeah. No, I have. I have. But oh, my, my mom makes it at home. Usually, there's, from what I recollect, there's no noodles, just a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. Like a lot of stuff. Delicious, gooey pancake. I don't think it's people in America really know it much, do they?、Uh, no, it's a little unusual. Like, you're、um, not going to a Japanese restaurant anywhere here and they're serving that, I feel like. Maybe in New York, there's a couple of places, but 
I feel like it's true, like comfort foodie. Yeah, I no, I think it's sushi and ramen up in up in this part of the world. Uh, sort of Japanese, <laughs> up in this piece, but, I thought you were. Gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> but in, uh, yeah, in Japan, there's a lot of like weird stuff that seems to be pretty commonplace. And okonomiyaki being one of them, takoyaki, you know, is another another yeah. one I love. Um, just oden. I Seven Eleven to oden. <gasps> yeah, Seven Eleven oden is that like a is that is that special? Is they it, just have Oden at Seven Elevens. It's amazing. Yeah, they also have like shiso sort of flavored, um, you know, fried chicken at Seven Eleven, which I, I really enjoy. What's the weirdest <laughs> thing you've ever eaten in Japan? Then I mean, if we're on this like path of non-art related conversation, <laughs> weirdest thing. Well, uh, so I'm lame. I have to preface it. I'm a vegetarian, so I don't eat. That no, that limits my husband's my, vegan. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm sorry. So that does. limits my weirdness. <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> but I had like a it was kind of not weird but I mean I guess palette wise it was a little my the first time I had Goya which mm-hmm. was like it was sort of minced mm-hmm. into a sort of um it was kind of uh what was it okay. it was a, a no it was a rice blend but it was like different kinds of rice it was yeah. it was really good but it was definitely different it was bitter yeah very very bitter yeah, but if you supposedly ever have raw, it's, it's like god awful. Yeah, it's like healthy though, right? It's like yeah, it's yeah, it's you know, it's vegetable. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's wonderful for you. Um, no, I had that in um, I had that in Okinawa for the first time um, a little while back. You've been there, There's Okinawa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never gone. There's a really incredible um, aquarium there. Oh yeah, the Osaka one's good. They have the whale sharks. Yep, they do have the whale that's sharks. A nice I grew up one. going to that one. That's a yeah. really nice one too. Yeah, but the uh, the Okinawa one, that one's legit. I recommend it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a fortress. It looks like something out of Jurassic Park, and then oh, you wow. go in, and it's really incredible. Anyway. But wait, I I didn't mean to be rude. Um, what was the oh weirdest God, thing so you've rude. <laughs> What was the weirdest thing you've eaten there? Oh, uh, actually, it relates to the the trip over there. Um, I had. <laughs> two things so they're sort of like both egg related um okay. yeah i guess it's not fugu but it's the um it's the egg sac of a blowfish and it's oh, brined yeah. in a particular fashion for a couple of years and so then it's like this very hard thing so, um, i actually really like that but then the other weird thing that i've had is um i guess again it's a, a little bit of like an egg sac i suppose but it's a deep fried fish sperm sure and you know, <laughs> it was like crispy and not so great. I don't recommend it. I could see that your your face is turning a little bit. <laughs> no, no, this is my. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, you know, you know, it Peter tastes like whatever. There, he doesn't have to eat stuff like that because he's vegan. <laughs> but I think we lost most of our audience right now at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the thing that we learned is that you have an mm. upcoming show. The work's going to be really interesting and engaging and people are going to have to go see it to understand what is going on in this work. Like they um, have to go Are you saying this because I didn't really like explain what the show was like? Gonna, no, that everything's better in person. Like you have to go. That's true. In person at Dinner Gallery in September. Um, please come. Um, so, and when's it open? Do you have the date yet? Yes. It's uh, Wednesday, September... It's that Wednesday, that first Wednesday. It's the eighth. Sorry, excuse me. There you go. Yeah, from six to September eight 8th. at Dinner Gallery. And people should follow you. You do Instagram. I do Instagram. 
Is that your most updated sort of, you know, where people see what you're up to? Your Um, website's pretty pretty on it. Like your website (laughs) works. Yeah. I dove in. Well, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's great. And it's, um, it's been great talking. Thanks for taking the time out and sharing your work and everyone should go see your show for sure. And check out your work. All right. Thank you. Show.